Blog Talk Radio. One of this nation's most important and powerful legal figures, Thomas A. Mesereau Jr. has achieved remarkable success in high-stakes criminal defense trials. Widely known for achieving acquittal of the late Michael Jackson on all 14 charges in a child molestation indictment, Thomas accomplished far more. A renowned criminal defense attorney, the famous and the not-so-famous, have put their trust in him. Born in West Point, New York, Tom is a graduate of Harvard University, the London School of Economics, and the University of California Hastings College of Law. He began his legal career as a prosecutor, but soon found that criminal defense work would be where he would find his calling and, more importantly, his passion. 
Tom has successfully represented a wide array of white-collar and blue-collar clients in federal and state courts and has won three consecutive white-collar cases before federal juries in Los Angeles. He was the first and only California criminal lawyer to obtain bail for his client, Robert Blake, who was facing murder charges. In 2009, he successfully defended the highest-grossing real estate agent in the country who was facing 21 counts of conspiracy and bank, loan, and mortgage fraud. Tom was also the first criminal lawyer to call an expert witness on cross-racial eyewitness identification in a death penalty trial in Alabama. His client was acquitted. Tom has been recognized with numerous accolades, tributes, and awards. Barbara Walters named him as one of the year's 10 most fascinating people for his trial excellence and commitment to representing the underprivileged in 2005. Loyola Law School in Los Angeles presented Tom with the prestigious 2011 Fiddler Institute Award for Excellence in Criminal Defense. He has been asked to speak at Harvard Law School and was asked by the City Club of Cleveland to be their Law Day speaker in May 2015. While Tom's legal career is noted with many highly publicized courtroom successes, he has a private and lifelong commitment to pro bono work, charitable activities, and remarkable giving. His compassion for others compels Tom to provide pro bono work as often as possible. For the past 18 years, Tom has defended a capital murder case with a colleague in Alabama. The jury acquittal of Wesley Quick, who spent six years on Alabama's death row for two murders he did not commit, is listed in the report of the National Registry of Exonerations, a joint project of Michigan and Northwestern law schools. Tom believes in returning to communities to help solve problems and reach out to the youth. He co-founded the Mesero Free Legal Clinic, where judges and lawyers donate their time two Saturdays a month and work with individuals who need help with legal matters. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the one, the only, Tom Mesero. Good evening, Tom. How are you? How you doing, Jordan? Okay. Uh, so um, it's been eight years this past Sunday that uh, your client and your friend Michael Jackson has passed away. Now, uh, let's go back eight years ago. And the uh, news uh, people were reporting it. And then I want to get your take after this clip. We're getting some breaking news coming into the situation right now from uh, about Michael Jackson, the king of pop, who's 50 years old. Let's go to Deborah Farrick. She's working the story for us. What are we picking up, Deb? Well, well, here's what we can tell you. This is what's being reported uh, by KTLA. Apparently, Michael Jackson suffered cardiac arrest this afternoon. He was rushed to UCLA Medical Center. At 12.21 this afternoon, the Los Angeles 911 operators took a call in regards to um, a need for a medical emergency uh, at the 100 block of Candlewood Drive, which is in West Los Angeles. Uh, when the paramedics got on scene, they, they treated the patient and then immediately transported the patient to a UCLA. We just talked to Brian Oxman. He is the family attorney for the Jackson, and, and he says that according to Randy Jackson, Michael Jackson's brother, Michael Jackson collapsed 
in his home in West Los Angeles this morning, and they called paramedics. He says that uh, the family is either at UCLA Medical Center or en route to UCLA Medical Center. CNN sources are now saying, multiple sources, that Michael Jackson is in a coma at UCLA Medical Center, suffered uh, from cardiac arrest, and is now in a coma. If you look at the aerials that you're showing on air and you see the number of people that have already gathered outside the hospital, if that isn't testament to the star power of Michael Jackson, I don't know what is. And we're just getting this in uh, right now, uh, and, and it's uh, very, very sad news, uh, Jim Moray, and to all of our viewers, both the Los Angeles Times and CBS News are both now reporting that Michael Jackson has died. Now, CNN has not confirmed that, but the LA Times and CBS News are reporting that Michael Jackson, 50 years old, the king of pop, has died. Uh, a very, very sad moment. What was Michael Jackson doing in Los Angeles before he was taken to the hospital? What new information do you have for us? Well, we do know that he's been in Los Angeles preparing to uh, undertake this uh, major concert event that he was scheduled to perform in London. Uh, this I have coming to stop you for a second, uh, AJ. CNN can now confirm from the, uh, from the L.A. coroner that uh, Michael Jackson is dead. Okay, Tom, uh, when you uh, hear this, uh, what comes to mind, first of all? Well, first of all, I just can't believe it's been eight years. It seems like yesterday that the shock of Michael Jackson's death, uh, you know, took over all of us. And, you know, I remember that day very well. I was uh, in a big federal criminal trial in Los Angeles in federal court. I was ending the day walking out of the, uh, the federal building. And uh, Tanya Zilke, who is, uh, was, a, was a girlfriend of Randy Jackson, Randy's been a friend of mine for years, she came up and said she had heard that Michael Jackson had passed away. And I didn't believe it. Because remember, there were so many rumors, uh, false rumors, exaggerated rumors about, you know, things Michael Jackson supposedly did that turned out not to be true. And I, my first thought was hoping this was just another one of them. And then I'm walking out of the building and two armed bailiffs came up to me and said, did you hear what happened to Michael Jackson? And then I realized, oh my God, this might be true. So I called my office uh, and my voicemail was full. And it was full with mm -hmm. journalists and media people from all over the world trying to get in touch with me to get my comment. And then I just, uh, I just was in shock. I just said, oh my God, this has got to be true. And uh, I found out it was true, and I just, uh, I was in shock, I was numb, I was sad, and I just remember thinking, you know, when I could poke through the shock, I remember thinking just, you know, some of the things that Michael had said to me during the trial, because that really was the intense time I spent with him. I think I was meant to defend him in that trial and really to be involved in that chapter, and I think that was my main role in his life you know after the uh, after the criminal trial we worked with him for about nine months when he was living in the middle east but i wasn't as close to him as then and and i remember he looked at me at one point and said tom life can be very hard you know and he had a sad a sad look in his in his eye and and he was correct was that life during can the be trial? very hard during the trial yeah and I remember thinking the poor soul, you know, he really was fundamentally kind, gentle, sensitive, decent. You know, he uh, he just uh, felt just like everybody always had their hand out trying to get something from him and resenting him if he didn't give it to them. Or sometimes he could, sometimes he couldn't. But I just uh, I just felt very, very sad for the 
you know, one of the greatest geniuses in life who also happened to be one of the kindest people in life uh, who died way too soon and I think was tormented and troubled much more than he ever deserved to be because, you know, fame can be difficult for anybody. Um, but to be the most famous person in the world, uh, you can imagine what you're facing in terms of trying to trust people. And, and there's a side of him that just wanted to be, have his feet on the ground and be nice and kind and have fun like children do. And I think he was chasing that, you know, that illusion his whole life, uh, feeling he had been denied a real childhood, wanting to be just kind of an ordinary guy at times and just have ordinary fun with people. And, uh, you know, yes, he experienced things that we'll never experience most of us because, you know, we don't have the talent and we don't have the, the world presence he had, but the poor fellow also paid a price for it. And I remember just being very, very sad. Once I got through the denial and the numbness, I felt very sad for a very, very kind, nice, special person who died way too soon. Yeah, you know, a lot of people, uh, I hear actors say it was almost like they lost a family member. Uh, Michael Jackson was like the soundtrack of their life. Yeah, you know, but I mean, it's, uh, you know, when you listen to his music and watch his dance routines and look at his incredible choreography and, you know, uh, we all enjoyed that. But um, unfortunately, the the poor fellow paid a little bit of a price for it, to say the least. He just... uh, he was forced to rehearse till three in the morning as a little boy, uh, get up a few hours later, go to school. He was forced to work in clubs, you know, in Chicago and Detroit, child and weekends. Um, just wasn't, you know, just able to enjoy spontaneous, innocent fun the way most kids were. And yes, his, his genius and his talent were perfected in the process. But the poor fellow, I think, just paid a terrible price. I think his emotional health and his physical health did. And, you know, we all enjoyed his music and his artistry, but the poor soul was a human being and a very sensitive one at that, um, who paid a price and should not have been dead at 50. You know, but I mean, look, doctors gave him things they shouldn't have given him. They gave Elvis Presley things they shouldn't have given him, Marilyn Monroe. I mean, how many stars can we point out who physicians you know gave drugs to for whatever reason I don't know maybe to do business maybe to stay close to the star maybe they thought it was good advertising I don't know but it's certainly wrong and he should never have been taking this propofol to sleep Uh, I totally agree now uh, you got into his trial uh, via Mark Aragos was axed he was fired right in uh, yes. 2003, I guess, or 2004? 2004. I think it was around April of 2004. Uh, Garagos was let go from the team, and I replaced he and Ben Braffin. So in 2004, about springtime, when were you officially uh, around, uh, around lead April, counsel? I, I, I forget the exact date, but I took over as lead counsel approximately – March, April of 2004, and the trial began January 31st of 2005. Now, what was your mindset um, that you were going to do different um, than the the attorney that was fired, Mark Garagos, 
going into this trial that you saw some that you were going to do different uh, approaching this trial? Well, I saw a lot of things, you know, when as an observer that just didn't ring right to me. Um, race seemed to be an issue before I got in the case. I understand why Michael and his family thought it was an issue, but I didn't think making race an issue was going to help them in that case in that community. You know, I noticed that when Garagos went to court, you know, the Nation of Islam was around Michael. And regardless of what you think of the Nation of Islam, I didn't think they belonged in that community uh, in a case like that because it was primarily a white, to a lesser extent, Latino community, very few African-Americans. And Michael was someone who brought all races together. You know, he didn't divide them. You know, listen to the music you just played to start this show. Look at his family. Look at his kids. Look at his statements through the year. Look how he was loved on every continent, Asia, Africa, the Middle East, you know, you name it, Europe. Um, I felt that with the kind of jury pool you were going to get, making race an issue was a mistake. So one of the first things I did was ask his father and Jermaine to stop calling it a legal lynching on television. I said, it, it probably is, but, you know, I want to win the case, you know. And I wanted to get the Nation of Islam out and not make, black activism is visible a thing and you know i was listened to i was trusted the nation of islam trusted me uh, his father did stop making the statements jermaine did stop making these statements i said look this is michael's community he chose to live in santa maria california in northern santa barbara county a predominantly blue collar mostly white community and this is where my jury is going to come from and i'm here to win that's my job you know after the after we acquit him he can hang out with anybody he wants or say whatever he wants, but I got to get this job done or he may die in prison. So that was the first thing I didn't like. The lawyers seemed to, to me to be promoting themselves constantly, big smiles on their face. Front of the cameras. Yeah, you know, I found out that this is a blue collar community, a working class community. I found out they were arriving in private planes. I felt that was not going to help Michael at all. And I wanted to tone down a lot of the media stuff, a lot of theatrical stuff, and just kind of get down to business and, you know, be kind of low-key and uh, hopefully focus on who was important, 13 people, the 12 jurors and the judge. They were more important than the lawyers getting attention. You know, if Garagos had put him on 60 Minutes, which I thought was a terrible mistake, uh, I didn't think Garagos had the right persona for that community and, you know, uh, Randy's the one who was after him. Pardon me? What do you think 60 Minutes was a problem in your opinion? I did, Michael looked like he didn't want to be on the show, and he told me later on he didn't want to be on the show. He said his lawyer insisted on it. And he oh, just really? looked, you know, he looked uncomfortable. He looked, you know, just yeah. out of place. He, you know, and, you know, it was an up. I was wondering as I watched it, is the lawyer promoting himself or is this good for Michael Jackson? And, of course, Michael was always suspicious that people were trying to profit off of him, as they often were. And Michael was always suspicious that people might want attention because they're around him. And, you know, the only thing to focus on in this case was acquittal. And it was obvious right. it wasn't going to be easy. You know, they had all these so-called victims, you know, or people saying that they saw him committing lewd acts and things of this sort. So it wasn't going to be Who also sold uh, their stories, a, right? Yeah, you know, a very conservative community with a very high conviction rate in that courthouse. 
uh, ugly charges, charges that, you know, I consider worse than being charged with murder is being charged with, you know, child molestation. So uh, I had to change the tone. I had to change the atmosphere. I had to make sure we focused on what was important. And, you know, God was with us. We won. Have you ever uh, tried a uh, any kind of sexual wrongdoing accused of in any other case? Yes. I've in other words, have you ever? In my, oh, okay. Number of them. My so career. I've done that, a lot of sexual assault cases, huh? So prior to that, you have uh, you have been with someone who was charged with uh, uh, sexual uh, misconduct. Yes, I had many trials, and I won a lot of them, too. I remember uh, at the beginning of the – when I got into the Michael Jackson case, I remember your favorite reporter, Diane Diamond, went on TV and (laughs) said words to the effect that that I had not defended sexual assault cases. (laughs) And it was obvious she wanted me off the case, you know. She had covered me in the Robert Blake case and had been very complimentary of me. And when I first appeared in Santa Maria – when I first appeared in Santa Maria, you know, Superior Court to represent Michael Jackson, I had no knowledge of her history with, you know, Michael. And I knew nothing about the antagonism and her closeness to Tom Sned. And I actually went up to say hello because she had covered the Robert Blake case for Court TV and had been very complimentary to me. And I remember when I said hello, I saw something in the corner of her eye that seemed uncomfortable. And I remember thinking to myself, what's wrong with her? What have I done? And then I realized right. very quickly what the what the history was. <laughs> and uh, is, is it true it that was she obvious got she didn't special, want to touch, she didn't want to compliment me. I heard she got special treatment. Uh, she was able to get into Neverland and do other things that other reporters weren't able to do, like get in Neverland I was early. Told, I was told she was the only member of the media that was part of the raid on Neverland in November of 2003 when 70 plus Santa Barbara sheriffs raided Neverland. I was told she was the only member of the media that was allowed to accompany them. So she clearly had a tight relationship with the late Tom Snedden, the district attorney of Santa Barbara County. And she would make comments on TV. She thought she was clever. She wasn't, you know, my, my opinion was she was hoping the family would get rid of me. <laughs> I'm sure she would Macaulay, have her own opinion on this. She may disagree with me. She was later fired, right? What's that? She was later. She was later fired uh, from TV, right? I was told she was let go from Court TV. Uh, I think it was in the fall of 2005. That's what I was told. I don't know if it's true. I, I got a recall from a uh, uh, one of the New York newspapers. I think it was the da- the Daily News called me up and told me she was leaving court TV and did I have a comment and I refused to comment. Oh, okay. Now, uh, witness like uh, Macaulay Culkin, uh, how important was he to your case, if at all? Enor- enormously important. Remember, you know, they, they brought in evidence, not only that, uh, that, you know, the Arvizo boy was molested. They also brought in evidence that five other young men were molested. One of them, Macaulay Culkin. So to call Macaulay Culkin as a witness in the beginning of our defense and to have him say, you know, he's my friend, I was never touched improperly, was extremely important. And Macaulay Culkin was under tremendous pressure not to help Michael Jackson, not to testify. 
I'll tell you something else that's funny. You talk about Diamond. The night before Macaulay Culkin testified, I met with he and his attorney. And right. his attorney was, was, was seemed very nervous about the whole thing. Macaulay wasn't nervous at all. He had absolutely no you know, doubt that he wanted to come in and tell the truth and support his friend Michael. Well, the next morning, you know, I routinely got up at 3 o'clock every day during the trial. I went to bed at 7.30, latest date. I got up at 3 o'clock, and I would do about three hours of work, three, three and a half hours of work before I went to court. And I, t- I was getting dressed that morning, and I turned on the television set. It might have been the Today Show. It could have been Good Morning America, but I think it was the Today Show. And they had Diane Diamond right. saying her sources, her sources tell her that Macaulay Culkin is not going to testify He's not going to be in the courtroom. (laughs) And I had just been with him the night before where he told me nothing was going to stop him from being in the courtroom. So, you know, whoever her sources were, they didn't give her the right information. Wow. So, okay, you have that. Now, the jury is out for how long? About a week or so? Jury was out for, uh, they deliberated, I think they came back the eighth day. They, They went out on a Friday and a week from the following Monday, they had their verdict. So how many hours is that approximately? I don't know what the total say? hours were. As I recall, I don't know what time they went out the first Friday. They went through the entire next week. And then the following Monday, it might, as I recall, it was around noon, we were told they have verdicts on all counts. Right, right. And they did ask the judge to read back some things, right? They uh, they wanted to see the, I believe the accuser Gavin on the the television again. I well, think that's I had, one of the things. You know, I had uh, in my closing argument, I had asked them to look at that tape carefully. You know, the prosecution right. played the the Gavin Arvizo interview with the police uh, in their rebuttal case, and the rebuttal case was a case they put on that followed our defense case. The, the prosecution goes first in a criminal case, and the defense can rest when they rest, or the defense can put on the defense's own case, which I did. I call lots of witnesses. If the defense puts on their own case, then the prosecution gets to rebut their, their, their witnesses. So they put on a short rebuttal, but it included playing the Gavin Arvizo interview with the police. And in, you know, the press were, were, were suggesting that this was was terrible for the defense, that it was going to hurt us, it may be a game changer, and, you know, I didn't think it would be at all, and in my closing argument, I told the jury, please look at that carefully, and look for the following, and I mentioned a number of things that they should look for when they see that interview to determine if it's credible, and uh, I was later on told by the foreman of the jury that they looked at it carefully and they agreed with everything I said. Really, so you encouraged the jury take a look at this. I did. For yourself. I did. I did. So I said, look at closet. it very carefully and ask yourself these questions. And I had a number of things they should talk, they should look for. And uh, I was told later on that it helped the defense. So by the time that you're like in day four, day five, uh, are you communicating with Michael? Is he nervous? What's the feeling? Uh, between the both of you at this time? Well, I'm getting calls, you know, each day, you know, what do I think? But there was no doubt in my mind that sitting at Neverland and watching TV, he was going to be nervous. I mean, the media wanted to see him convicted. 
you know, oh, yeah. some of the stations, some of the stations, including Fox TV, were showing photos and, and film of the jail cell. They said he was, they all but suggested he was going to be in. They I mean, here's a jury. The jail deliver- cell where he would be. Here's a jury deliberating, and while they're deliberating, uh, the media, major networks are showing a jail cell where they where he could end up. I mean, to me, that was very unfair and uh, poor reporting and certainly wasn't journalism, and thank God the jury didn't even listen to any of it. This jury wasn't a, uh, a jury like where they, they were free to do whatever they wanted in terms of television, right? I mean, they no, they were not. To a point. They were absolutely not. Absolutely not. They, they were instructed requested? throughout the trial not to watch any media or any news reports on the trial, not to read them in magazines or newspapers. They were instructed repeatedly. But they weren't in a hotel not, or anything like that, right? They, they were not sequestered. They were like not sequestered. They, they were not sequestered like the O.J. Simpson jury, but they were instructed to not look at any media reports on the trial. What decision goes into that? The judge's decision is that prosecution and defense uh, goes into that? Who makes well, that I think, final decision? I, I, think, I think, I mean, certainly each side can request the judge do that, but I think in, in high-profile criminal cases, a judge will regardless. He will always tell jurors each day, you know, before they leave the courtroom, stay away from media reporting, stay away from television, newspapers, if you see a report coming out on the case, don't watch it, don't read it. I mean, they were instructed every day during that five-month trial to stay away from the media. So, okay, let's bring it to that day, June 13th, uh, 05. So tell me how that day started for you, and then finally uh, you ended up victorious on all counts. Well, I will bring us back to that day. I woke up that morning with a very strong, intuitive feeling this is going to be a special day. Something's going to happen. And I had a very strong feeling there was going to be a verdict. And, you know, I've taken a lot of verdicts before and a lot of verdicts since. And you're always nervous whenever you think there's going to be a verdict because you just don't know who those jurors are and what they've been discussing and what the chemistry in the jury room has been. You don't know who's dominated. Uh, who hasn't, you know, you just don't know. You just don't know who's affected who. You don't know who wants to go home and and end this thing. You just don't know. So there's always uncertainty, and that makes you nervous. But I have to say that I woke up that day. I had a very strong feeling it's going to be a special day, and I was very optimistic about Michael. I just had a feeling they weren't going to get 12 people to convict him. Did I know they would get 12 to acquit? No, I didn't. But I just felt the way we had handled our case, the way, we, the way we had cross-examined their witnesses, the quality of the witnesses we put on, the way we attacked them in the rebuttal case. And I felt uh, our closing argument was very, very good in terms of directing the jury what to focus on, what to think about. Um, I felt that they had not proven their case, and I felt that we had pretty much proven him to be an innocent man which we didn't have to do, but I told him in my opening statement, you know, this is not going to be a typical criminal case. I'm going to prove to you this man's innocence. And I felt we had done that. And I just, you know, w- without really being sure, I had a feeling this is going to be a special day and it's going to be a good day. So when you got to the 
to the uh, courtroom, how long did you have to wait till the actual verdicts were read? Approximately. You know, it took a while. We were at lunch and near the courthouse, and I remember a bailiff came in and said, they have verdicts. Um, you better let Michael know. And, uh, did we you did look that. at the jury as you came in? Oh, well, this is before. You... This is before. Yeah. We're, this is before. I'm at lunch, so we're told their verdicts. He'd like to read it. I think it was at 1.30. Um, mm-hmm. I had to call Michael and tell them to head over to the courthouse. And as I recall, I think the motorcade with traffic got to the courthouse around quarter of two, I think, California time. And, of course, you know, people all over the world were watching to see what the verdicts were. Times Square, everything stood still in New York. And, oh, yeah. You know, uh, it just just was a – I remember uh, later on looking at some of the footage. It's on my website, the footage of the verdict. And Brian Williams on NBC says, you know, words to the effect to let you know how big this is. There are 2,200 accredited media, you know, about to watch this verdict, he said that's more than O.J. Simpson and Scott Peterson combined. <laughs> oh my! And uh, it was an amazing <laughs> day. Amazing day, you know. I was at the courthouse, and then, the, you know, the motorcade was slowly winding its way to the courthouse, and uh, we went in. Uh, the courtroom was packed, mostly with media people, but his family as well. And then uh, the jurors came in. And uh, they had very uh, serious looks on their faces. They handed mm-hmm. the envelope. The foreman handed the envelope to the judge's clerk who gave it to the judge to look over the verdict forms. He then gave the forms uh, back to the clerk, and the clerk then read the verdict on each count. Fourteen not guilty. A lot of people said there was ten not guilty like in the beginning because I guess I don't know why. Uh, I guess the original indictment was for 10? The original indictment was 10 felony counts, conspiracy, and the rest of the counts were either child molestation, attempted child molestation, or giving alcohol alcohol. to a child to prepare the child to be molested. So the grand jury indicted Michael on 10 felony counts. As the case was about to go to the jury, Judge Melville on his own initiative, on his own motion, as we say it in the profession, said he wanted to give the jurors an option on the last four felony counts. And the option oh. was this. If they, if they find Michael Jackson not guilty of any of the last four felony counts, which are alcohol-related counts, meaning if they find him not guilty of giving alcohol to a victim, a child, for the purpose of molestation, they then had the option of convicting of a misdemeanor giving alcohol to an underage person. So, so it was almost it, like a bone he threw, he threw to the prosecutors, it sounds like. Absolutely, absolutely. He was giving them an opportunity to walk out with a conviction, even if it was a misdemeanor conviction. They didn't ask for that instruction. He did it on his own initiative. We didn't ask for it either. So... Because they acquitted him on all the felony counts, they then had to decide whether he was guilty or not guilty on the four lesser-included misdemeanor counts, and they said not guilty 14 total times, 10 felonies, four misdemeanors. And it was reported that, uh, well, you, you already said that you did not do a press conference like most lawyers in that situation with this high-profile case. Uh, you will let it to go back to Neverland with Michael Jackson. Is that true? 
I I did. I felt that our, our place was at Neverland with Michael and his family. Um, you know, I was exhausted. I'd had it with the media, to be honest with you. And it took me a while <laughs> to get over that because I was so upset with the media, the way they tried to spin a conviction. I mean, imagine every day the jury's deliberating. If I turn the TV on, I'm looking at jail cells where he's supposed to end up. I mean, you know, I yeah. had a, I had a mindset from the day I showed up to appear for the first time that the media is not going to manipulate me and they're not going to manipulate the jury and justice is going to be done. And I, I didn't even like smiling as I walked in and out of the courtroom. I felt that they, even if I smiled, they would try to blow it up and try to make the local population think I was, think I was having fun in a serious trial. You know, I was very, very anti-media during that whole case. And I think I was right. Were, I think it required. I think it required a lawyer to do that to win. You were, your your hours were very short in terms of you were in bed by what eight nine the latest first. I live I, I live like a hermit for six. I lived up there in Santa Maria, which is in Santa Barbara County, north of Los Angeles County, um, and this is the northern part of that county. I lived there for six months in a condo and routinely I was in bed at seven thirty or eight o'clock every night. And I was up without fail at three every day. I had staff, uh, in condos around me. We had a war room with about, you know, God, about 40 computers and 4,000 binders of documents. And we had staff that would work all night to update my witness books. You know, when I try a case, I'd like a notebook or notebooks. On every witness, I'd like every document in chronological order that refers to that witness. I don't care whether the document's a, a newspaper article, a police report, a statement, a declaration. I don't care what it is. And the prosecution kept giving us documents late. And my staff would try to update my witness books because we would know who was going to testify the next day um, if I were cross-examining. So they would be they had a key to my condo, and they would be dropping updated witness books on my stairwell. It was a duplex all through the night. So I would get up at 3 o'clock, you know, put my bathrobe on, make a cup pot of coffee, get something to eat, and then look down my stairwell and see notebooks, you know, on all these <laughs> stairs. <laughs> and I would go down and pick them up and start preparing for the day. And I, I just did not want to be seen in a restaurant or a bar or a hotel lobby or any place where the media could try to, you know, put me in a compromising position. And I just, uh, I live like a monk. I live like a hermit. Wow. <laughs> That's unbelievable. Okay, we'll get to the uh, callers who want to talk to you about that. Let's touch on the Bill Cosby trial. Uh, we have a juror who talks about it. Here's some sound, and we'll talk. Those exclusive new details about Bill Cosby's sex assault mistrial. A juror speaking only to ABC, taking us inside those 52 hours of deliberation. This is a stunning account and revealing why the 12 jurors were ultimately unable to come to an agreement. ABC's Lindsay Davis has the story. From crying outbursts to intense arguments to a possible hand injury after one juror punched a wall, the 52 hours of deliberations inside a tiny room not large enough to even pace took a toll on the jurors in Bill Cosby's sexual assault trial, according to a juror in an exclusive interview with ABC News who describes the experience as grueling and emotional. The juror, who agreed to speak to us on the condition of anonymity, said two jurors prevented a guilty verdict. 
Ten of the 12 jurors agreed Cosby was guilty of two of the three counts against him, having a sexual encounter with accuser Andrea Constan without her consent, and giving Constan drugs without her knowledge to prevent her from resisting. But the juror also told us they were near acquittal on one count that Constan was unconscious during the event. The vote, 11 to 1. When they first entered the room and took a non-binding preliminary poll, the jurors overwhelmingly said they thought Cosby was not guilty on all three counts of aggravated indecent assault. The juror says the holdouts against finding the 79-year-old entertainer guilty were not moving no matter what. Constance says Cosby drugged and sexually assaulted her at his home in 2004. He says the encounter was consensual. Although only one other accuser was allowed to testify at trial, more than 50 other women have come forward with similar accusations. Cosby has also denied those allegations. ABC News reached out to several other jurors who declined to comment. But the juror we spoke to tells us despite the fiery exchanges and intense pressure, the group of seven men and five women are now friendly and keeping in touch by phone and text. Lindsay Davis, ABC News, New York. This is really fascinating. Let's bring in ABC's chief legal analyst, Dan Abrams. Dan, always great to have you on this. But this notion that the jurors would enter that room, a non-binding vote, all of them saying not guilty, and then over the course of six days, 10 out of the 12 would decide guilty on two counts. Yeah, look, it's very typical for jurors to take a straw vote when they come in and say, you know, where does everyone stand? And everyone sort of raises their hands. That's part of the deliberation process, right? That's not a binding verdict. That's not a ruling. That doesn't happen until the verdict form uh, goes in. But what's astonishing here is that you had all of them saying not guilty, and then as the deliberation process went on, 10 to 2, I mean, this is out of a movie. Right. This is like, you know, that 12 angry men the other, the, the other way. It's just it's it's I've never heard of something like this where the, where 10 of the 12 jurors apparently changed their minds to the point from where they were ready to acquit, prepared to convict by the end. Lindsay was reporting there It was a tiny room, not even room to pace. This juror apparently said, but but fists into walls. I mean, this could come up again. Well, I, look, I think that you can expect the defense to file a motion and say, look, they were ready to, to acquit if the the room hadn't been so terrible and the situation hadn't been so bad. Bill Cosby would have been acquitted and therefore there should be no retrial. They're not going to win on that motion. They'll likely make it. Uh, but that's not the sort of motion you win on. To win on something like that, you have to really show juror misconduct. And even when you show juror misconduct, typically what you get is a new trial. And Bill Cosby's getting a new trial anyway. So really interesting, though, uh, this reporting on this. A peek inside that juror room. All yeah. right, Dan Abrams, always great to have you here. Uh, thanks, Dan. Okay, Tom, you've been covering this from the get-go. Uh, what is your take of the... Uh, uh, Hungary, if you will. Well, I'm not surprised. I always thought it was a weak case. Um, you know, I wasn't in the courtroom. I don't know the evidence like people who participated know it. But it was always my understanding that the accuser um, had not been credible with the police when she initially talked to them, that she apparently said uh, she hadn't had contact with them after the alleged event, covered, I think, that there were something like 72 phone calls between them and that she and her mother had gone to a concert either with them or he got them tickets. And, you know, that was very suspicious to me. Um, and, you know, there's no forensic evidence tying Cosby to anything. And my understanding is that that deposition that they read that the prosecution thought would be good for them, Cosby says that was consensual. 
he says everything was consensual, I think. So that sounds like a tough case to me. That's a he said, she said type case. And I don't know why it would get stronger the next time around, but then you never know who's going to be on the jury and who's going to control the jury room, dominate it, who's going to want to go home. You just don't know. And by the way, there's a show that's going to be on Oxygen next month, July, uh, uh, where they're going, to, they're going to focus on the Michael Jackson jury. I was Are interviewed for the show. show. I'm on that show. Well, I, was interv- I was interviewed for it. Uh, exactly who they'll put in it and how they'll do it, I don't know. But my understanding is they got six jurors to, uh, to participate in the show. So I'm going to certainly be looking at that one. It's interesting with these jurors, and we had the two jurors in the Michael Jackson case change their mind after uh, they got involved with Casey Brown, allegedly. Um, so we see that a lot. Well, but, that, but that's, mean, think- that's, look, that, that's all meaningless because, you know, when you're on a right. jury, you're told not to watch media, not to read anything about the case, not to discuss the case with anyone outside the jury room. And then, you know, as, as you said, I think it was a couple of months later after they were saturated with media and who knows sure. who they knew that talked to them and were upset with it. And all of a sudden they say they've changed their mind. That, that, that's meaningless to me. Yeah. Once they put in their final vote, there should be some kind of law, I guess, that uh, uh, prevents them from saying, you know what, now I think he's guilty. I mean, it's it's kind of like uh, it's a, it's it's wrong, you know, morally, and it should be wrong lawfully. Well, I think both of the jurors you're talking about uh, initially were interviewed right after the verdict and were defending yes. their, their verdict. Um, and then for two months later to say, maybe lady. I made a mistake. You know, I, I, to come out two months later and say I made a mistake, I don't put much importance in that. I really don't. Now, uh, you were interviewed uh, along with uh, John Burris and uh, Wendy Murphy, and uh, you predicted that it's going to be a weak case and uh, Bill Cosby will walk this next trial. Well, I, I, think it, I think it's a very weak case, but you never know who's going to be on the jury and what perspective or bias they'll bring in. You just don't know, and that's why jury trials are risky. They're very hard to predict. But I don't think it's a strong case, and I think we learned that, you know, when the jury hung. Now, I look at your case where they tried to bring in at least five uh, accusers to show the same pattern. Now, this judge could have brought in, I guess, all 50-plus accusers because that's what there was. Uh, They found, I guess, five. You know, what goes into that situation? Is it? Pennsylvania? Is it versus California? Is it the judge? How does that work? It's very discretionary with the judge. In the Jackson case, the prosecution wanted to bring in more evidence than he let them bring in, but he let them bring in evidence that five other young men had been molested. And he allowed them to bring in witnesses to say they saw that even if the prosecution didn't bring the actual so-called victim in. So, you know, they, they brought in evidence and and witnesses to say that Macaulay Culkin and Wade Robson and Brett Barnes were molested. And then I started our case by bringing in those three who said they weren't molested. Now, in the Cosby case, the prosecution wanted to bring in 13 other witnesses uh, claiming that, you know, they wanted to show that Bill Cosby had a pattern of doing this to, to women. And the judge let them only bring one in. So, 
they uh, they got a they got a bigger break than we got in in the Michael Jackson case. Yeah. That's for sure. I remember, their trial was six days. Ours was five months. That's a, that's a huge difference. And uh, now, are you familiar with uh, Bill Cosby's lawyer? And if so, uh, what did you think of his uh, job? Well, I don't know them, but I think they did an excellent job. I mean, the result shows they did. You know, they have very good reputations. Uh, there's a fellow in Pennsylvania who has got a very good reputation, former prosecutor. I understand his closing argument was excellent. And there's a, a female lawyer from Los Angeles who I think is handling all of his civil cases. And for what I can see, she's doing an excellent job. So the, the legal team is to be commended. They did a great job for, for their clients. What about the wife uh, basically going off on the prosecutor, the judge, and everything? People, a lot of legal analysts said maybe she should have not did that, knowing that there's another trial coming up and you might be dealing with the same judge. What's your thoughts on that? Well, you know, I mean, it's understandable why she's upset and emotional. Um, and I think the judge is enough of a professional to not take that into account uh, when there's a retrial. Um, and I think everyone understands how upset Mrs. Cosby must be over this terrible thing. Remember, he's facing a bunch of civil cases. His reputation's been yeah. hurt. He may have to sit in a criminal courtroom again. So I think everybody understands why she's upset. Um, I don't think and he was uh, supposedly joking with the uh, fans when they, uh, I guess, the, he did some kind of Fat Albert skit, and they, he said, hey, hey, hey. I guess he was in a good mood. He never like seemed down. Was that good? Is that good for your client to do something like that? Like hey, hey, hey. You know, you know, like... Jordan. I wasn't there. I don't know all the details, so I can't pass judgment on him. Uh, you know, I'm not in his shoes, and I wasn't there, and I don't know exactly what happened. But you know, my understanding is he tried to keep uh, his spirits up. I think he showed respect for everybody in the courtroom, which he should have. So I'm not about to criticize anybody when I really don't know what I'm talking about. Right, right. So how long do these usually these retrials take approximately? Well, I think this will take the same amount. I don't know what the prosecution can do differently. I suspect no, it will be another six-day uh, trial. Case. Like how long in terms of years? Uh, will... I mean, I, I, my guess is it will be tried within a year. You know, there may be oh, some okay. delays for whatever reason, but I know the judge was talking about setting a trial date within 120 days, but something tells me it'll be delayed a little longer than that. Okay, uh, recently Lifetime made the uh, Menendez brothers. Let's hear a clip about the Menendez brothers, and I'm going to get you to take about them 30 years later. Well, first of all, I think that all children love their parents. Trauma to the torso. Parents are like gods to kids. Be menace and carnage. And they love me. Shocking, the amount of blood. And I love them. This was a horrific crime. It sounded like a Was it a robbery? Was it a gang-related type thing? Was it a mafia-related type thing? Who hated them? Stop saying it was that fly. I definitely would give that up.
I felt we were in grave danger. Glass, things breaking, ringing noises from the boom, the smoke from the guns, chaos. I just fired every shot I had. I just fired until there was nothing left. Joining me now on the phone from Mule Creek State Prison in California is Lyle Menendez. Mr. Menendez, can you hear us? I can hear you, Chris. Take us back to that night and what happened. I asked him if that's a threat. He said, you take it for what it is. I know my father. I know what that means. He isn't going to go through a child molestation trial. He would rather go through a murder trial. That was a damning set of recollections. I did not threaten him in any way. She's lying to? He did not say that. How do you explain yeah, it? That's not accurate either. Did you think that you guys were going to get away with this? No. Uh, uh, I... Murder in Beverly Hills, the aftermath. Okay, Tom, uh, this is almost 30 years now, and they just did a movie on it. The Menendez brothers, uh, you uh, you follow it to a point, I guess, right? What's your take on I that? Fo- I, fo- uh, I, I followed the case. I followed the case very thoroughly, and the case was on my mind at a cr- critical point in the Michael Jackson trial. And I'll tell you what <laughs> really? I'm talking about. When the prosecution rested their case, I felt we had destroyed their witnesses on cross examination. I felt that I had had more good days taking care of their witnesses than I probably would, would have in the rest of my life. And that made it very difficult to decide whether to put on a defense case. And mm-hmm. I felt that we definitely had a hung jury. If I had rested when the prosecution rested and not called any defense witnesses, I felt there was a very good chance we had a hung jury. I wasn't confident that we had acquittals on every count. And I thought of the Menendez case. And the, the Menendez brothers went through two trials. In the first trial, the jury, good lawyers, Uh, both of them had separate lawyers. Leslie Abramson was terrific, and and, uh, the other brother had great lawyers. Um, And the jury hung. And before the the retrial, the judge changed most of his rulings that helped the defense. He gutted the defense case. And they couldn't call certain experts. They couldn't call certain eyewitnesses. He really, really gutted their case, and they were convicted in the retrial. I was extremely concerned that if this jury hung, that the trial judge might change some of his rulings that helped the defense. For example, he let the prosecution play the Bashir documentary, and he, in return, he let us play the outtakes. I was concerned that in a retrial, he may not let us play the outtakes, or the prosecution may not, might not play the Bashir documentary, which I felt helped us more than hurt us even though the media was all saying it's going to really kill us. So I had the Menendez case on my mind. I said, I don't think Michael can withstand a retrial emotionally and physically. And what if the judge changes some of the rulings that have really helped us? And I said to myself, we got to take our chances and go for all-out acquittal. So I put on a complete defense case, which allowed the prosecution to put on a rebuttal case, as I said before. And fortunately, we prevailed on every single count. But that, what the trial judge Menendez did was right on my mind, believe me. 
when I had to decide what to do. And I, you know, everyone was so sure that no defense lawyer could do well in this case that I said to myself, you know, 99% of defense lawyers will probably rest now. And if they get a hung jury, you know, everyone around the world will say they're great lawyers because nobody gave them a chance. But what's it really going to mean? It's going to mean Michael has to do a retrial, and it may be very different. So I just said, you know, we're here. We've done a good job. Let's tell our complete story. Some of the media said that a, uh, a, uh, what happened to Bill Cosby would be like a victory, they were saying, prior to the uh, verdict. Oh. Well, they would have said that they would have said that uh, they would have said that to me if I had hung the jury. But what would it have really meant? It would have meant Michael has to go through this again. It would have meant the prosecution might change their strategy. It would have meant the judge could change his rulings to help the prosecution. And I thought he was in their pocket. I thought he he, he tried to be very fair, and and a lot of what he did was 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 very fair. But nevertheless, he might have changed his rulings to help him. And I said, we can't risk this. I'm going to go all out try and get an acquittal. So, I mean, so the Menendez I guess I'm giving brothers. a roundabout answer to your question. I mean, the Menendez case was a was a was a tragic case for two wealthy kids who grew up in Beverly Hills and had top educations and great futures. Decided to uh, to murder their parents and brutally shot the two of them to death one night. Called the police, screaming and yelling, uh, you know, trying to throw the, uh, the 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 attention off themselves. And eventually were caught and convicted. It's a very bizarre and very terrible case. But trust I guess me, I knew that case the, backwards. And, huh? The credibility of uh, if you believed that they were molested by the father. Um, I wasn't following it at the time. Uh, did you get a feeling uh, uh, either way? Well, I don't really know. I mean, they're, 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 they both testified in the first trial. Only one of them testified in the second trial. And the testimony mm-hmm. was compelling. But what happened in the retrial was the judge wouldn't allow all the witnesses to the sexual abuse to testify. And, and those witnesses and, collaborated what they said, right? Yes. Yeah, he cut a lot of them out. He cut their experts out. He made it very difficult for them to raise that defense in the retrial. Wow, and uh, that was probably the uh, first sensational case before O.J., right? That was before O.J. Simpson. Yeah, that was right. before that the, was... the first. The first trial was before O.J. Simpson. I think the retrial may have happened. And that was on TV. While Simpson was going right. on. Yeah, the first one was on TV. Uh, the defense lawyers did a great job. I think the prosecutors didn't know how to cope with their defense very well. And and the jury did not – the jurors all wanted to convict, as I understand it, but they couldn't agree on what to convict them on. Some said first degree, some said second degree murder, some said manslaughter, and they just couldn't reach any agreement on what the verdict should be. Wow. Uh, the person who played the uh, part said that they deserve to be uh, acquitted. I guess they have knowledge uh, of the case, but – uh, we'll see if that ever happens. Um, okay, our final story is, does O.J. Simpson deserve to be paroled? 
Here is a quick uh, clip, and then I'll uh, get your take on O.J. Simpson. Here's the reason why I think he should spend the rest of his life in prison, because he's an idiot, that's why. Idiocy to this level, to this level, when I firmly believe that you are a double murderer. I firmly believe that you killed Nicole Brown since then Ronald Goldman. I firmly believe that you laughed in the face of the system, you mocked it, and instead of having the decency to walk away because the trial was turned into something else, due to the greatness of Johnny Cochran and the ineptitude of Marsha Clark and Christopher Darden. The bottom line is you had an opportunity, an ideal opportunity, to chill out, walk away, and go on with your life. And instead, what did you do? You laughed and, you laughed and mocked Ronald Goldman's family when they sued you civilly and won about $33.5 million, but your money was protected and they couldn't reclaim all of this stuff. And I want to make sure I emphasize this. Under no circumstances am I saying, and I know everybody, I know a whole bunch of people is going to disagree with me, and I get it, I understand it. Under no circumstances am I saying that I believe that O.J. did not get railroaded with this whole memorabilia stuff. I get all I totally understand it. But when you are an individual that was on trial for double murder that I believe got off, by the way, and you still don't have the decency and the common sense not to stare the system in the face and give it the proverbial middle finger. You deserve what you get. And as far as I'm concerned, that's exactly what it is. And I hear in the prison that they watch, in the prison that he's in outside of Reno, Nevada, that they actually watch ESPN. I hope he's watching me right now. That man brought all of this on himself. He didn't know any better. He was an idiot for finding himself in another predicament, and he put it on himself, and he deserves what he's getting. Courtesy of uh, ESPN, uh, that is Stephen A. Smith. Carl, uh, what's your take with uh, O.J. Well, getting... I don't, uh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't disagree with what he's saying. You know, uh, I think the evidence was overwhelming that O.J. was guilty. And I think right. he benefited from fantastic lawyering, including lawyering by the best trial lawyer I ever saw in my lifetime, Johnny Cochran. And to behave the way he did was completely ridiculous, <laughs> foolish. And he kept, you know, taunting the system, and he got burned. <laughs> now, do I think – I think anyone else in his position would probably be let out on parole. Um, but right. because he's O.J. Simpson, they may not do it. Apparently, he's been a model prisoner. Uh, he's been a good example to other prisoners. He's uh, followed all the rules, uh, been no trouble to anyone. And as I understand it, he probably should be released. But I wonder if, since he's O.J. Simpson, if they'll really do it. That'll be uh, next week, and uh, we will find out. Just uh, a few questions from uh, Twitter. Uh, sure. From Sane uh, MJ Fan uh, asks a couple questions. Aphrodite gave an interview that stated that she was told by a member of Michael's defense team, she didn't say who, that Martin Bashir uh, set up that infamous scene in the documentary that with Gavin and uh, Michael uh, holding hands. Um, what could you say about that? I, I was not told that by anyone I trusted. I'm not saying it's not true. It may very well be true, given what I saw Mr. Bashir doing to Michael and the way I think he manipulated him. 
And the way I think we proved he manipulated him, I wouldn't be surprised if that were true, but I really don't know if it's true or not. Okay, uh, same person, uh, Mr. Mesero. There are many people, both the general public and some fans, explanation point, who have a lot of misconceptions about Michael Jackson letting kids sleep in his bedroom. Some people think that he forced boys to lay in bed with him and cuddle while kicking out little girls and parents. This is one of the main reasons that people wrongly think he was a pedophile. Can you please explain to the listeners that MJ let many people, both boys, girls, and their parents, sleep in his bedroom suite? Well, we proved at trial that he let girls and mothers sleep in his bed. Mothers slept there. Sisters slept there. Um, and I never heard of him forcing anyone to sleep in his bed. Um, you know, in fact, uh, the accusers, I don't recall ever saying he forced them into his bed. I don't recall anybody ever saying that, to be honest with you. So um, this idea that he would force any child into his bed, is that's the first time I've ever heard of it. I don't even think the prosecution was trying to say that. They were trying to say that he molested children who were in his bed, but I don't think they ever said he forced anyone in. So this is a new one for me. Um, but we did prove that he that sisters and mothers slept in his bed, travel with him, et cetera. And his bed was like, for an average person, it was like a, a house, for lack of a better term, right? It was like an office building. I mean, it was so big. Even Macaulay Culkin in an interview was laughing about how big his bedroom is. It was like a house. Right, right. And didn't the prosecution ask him when he fell asleep that something might have happened in a week or two? Oh, I think, to, uh, I think they, were, they were so desperate at that. They really saw this case slipping away. So I think it may have been Prosecutor Ron Zonin, who is a very good prosecutor, I think he asked one of these witnesses, how do you know you weren't molested when you were asleep? Something like that. It's utterly ridiculous. At MJ Fam 21 says, uh, was the Michael Jackson case your biggest and most proud? Well, it was my biggest case in many ways. You know, it was certainly the biggest in terms of, you know, the celebrity media factor, the, the media factor. But, you know, everyone's case is the biggest case for them. And sure. I don't value anyone's life more than anyone else's life. So whether you're poor, rich, famous, unknown, whether it's a one-week trial or a five-month trial, when you're in a criminal case, it's the most important case in the world for you. So, you know, I don't judge any life greater than any other life. But, you know, there are many reasons to think it was the biggest for sure. Media celebrity factor. Michael Jackson was the best known person in the world. He had followers all over the world. You know, he had detractors too, obviously, particularly in the United States. But, um, you know, that's my answer pretty much. But, but you know, every life, uh, when they're in, in trouble in the criminal justice system, the most important case, the biggest case for them is their case. Okay, David on Twitter wants to know, uh, recently in the Lifetime movie, they showed Tito in a reenactment of uh, actual life in 2007 or so, uh, driving into uh, Michael's rented house, uh, demanding money, and the bodyguard drawing a gun. 
Uh, can you verify if there was trouble with the brothers? I have no idea. I, I'm not a witness to any of this. I, I don't know about any of this. I haven't spoken to Tito or anyone about any of this. So I, I really am not the one to ask. I have no idea. Right, because I remember Randy and, uh, at least when you were involved, uh, Randy helped organize getting you to be the lead attorney, I believe, right? Yes, Randy was the one that, from day one, pushed to have me be the lead lawyer. And from day one, he didn't care. He didn't care for Mr. Garagos. He called me a number of times saying, you know, we can't win with this attorney, and you're the one I've always wanted. And, you know, he was the one that wanted me in, and he worked hard to keep me in, too, because you can imagine the lawyers who were trying to replace me throughout the, the case, even during the trial. Oh, my, that must have been crazy. I could just imagine. And finally, um, you recently had some big acquittals uh, for some unfortunate people. Would you share that with my audience? Well, I just tried a high-profile homicide case uh, in Birmingham, in Bessemer, Alabama, which is about 30 minutes outside of Birmingham. Very high-profile Very, very tragic case. A, a war hero from Iraq, a former tank commander, a uh, loving father of two sons, uh, managed the local insurance company office and came out of his house one morning and uh, just to exercise and was shot to death. And they charged four young African-American gang members with the murder. And the first one that went on trial was my client. And uh, my client, I put him on the stand. He admitted doing breaking and entering cars, but he said he had nothing to do with the murder and didn't know it was going to come down and had no involvement in it. And he was acquitted of murder. And I just learned that the Ku Klux Klan uh, have been circulating flyers all throughout oh, uh, these neighborhoods talking about Rise Up Whitey and talking about the Negro being acquitted. And, you know, it's hard to believe this stuff's still going on, but it is. So that was, uh, I recently tried that case with my dear friend from Birmingham, Charlie Salvaggio, great trial lawyer who I've been trying cases with for almost 20 years. And you mentioned you had some pictures on your website. Can you tell the audience your website address? Well, mesero at meserolaw.com is my email. Um, you know, meserolaw is the uh, dot com is the uh, what the website. Absolutely, and uh, these these cases must make you feel good. These pro bono cases that you uh, that you win uh, so much. I mean, that got to be a special place in your heart. Uh, well, I'm glad when to you see, win those glad cases. To see, uh, a person with no resources get get justice too. You know, uh, a lot of poor people can't afford decent representation, don't get decent representation, and uh, it was nice to see this young man get justice. Nobody thought we had a chance to win in that case. We had an amazing job and an amazing job here tonight, Tom. I want to thank you so much. Uh, have a happy Fourth uh, of July and good uh, luck the rest of the way and. Uh, Hope to speak to you soon. Thank you so much for uh, doing this. Thank you for having me on the show. It's always an honor and a privilege to be on your show, and you do so much for the Michael Jackson community, and you're to be commended as well. Thank you again. Thanks, Tom. Always the best. Have a great uh, holiday on the 4th. Thanks so you much. You too. Thank you. That was the lead attorney for the Michael Jackson uh, trial, Thomas Mesero Jr., uh, of course, uh, 
Check him out on uh, Twitter at, well, he has a fan page. Uh, check it out there. Um, uh, also, um, good show. So uh, thanks for uh, people like uh, Sane Fan uh, from Twitter who uh, retweeted it. Um, oh, okay, at Fan Page Mezzaro. Go, uh, please, uh, go follow that. Um, okay, so, uh, I want to give a shout-out to, uh, Maddie, Pager, uh, Vicky. Thank you all. And, uh, tonight we're going to play some Jackson, Jackson 5, courtesy, uh, uh, Madison Square Garden 2001. Um... We'll speak to you next time here on King Jordan Radio. Thanks so much to uh, Tom Mezzaro. We'll speak to you uh, soon. Uh, please follow us on
this building without doing the first hit song. Or never can say goodbye. How about let's get serious? No, 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 Jermaine. No, that that was your thing. That was not. Do you mean I want you back? You know what? Do you want to hear I want you back? Okay. We'll do it. We'll do it. But if we do it, we'll do it the old-fashioned way, like in 1970 on the Ed Sullivan Show. <laughs> 